How many of you like bluegrass music? Raise your hand. I like it somewhat so-so. Now, my wife loves bluegrass music. Every year we go to what is called the Pumpkin Town Festival. It's in Pumpkin Town, South Carolina. And of course, all day they have bluegrass music. And about a month ago, we were driving up to Kentucky to go to the Ark Museum. And on the way there, we happened to come across a station that was playing bluegrass music. And of course, I was listening to the lyrics and they're very, very biblical, but one of the things that I noticed was the singer said, this isn't our home, we are just aliens and we are sojourners. You know, the Bible says in First Peter that we are aliens and sojourners on this earth, this isn't our permanent home. And the question is, how do we live as alien and sojourners? Well, turn to First Peter chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2, as we continue in our study verse by verse through First Peter, we're looking specifically this morning at verses 11 through 25. Now remember, Peter was writing to a group of beleaguered Christians who were going through persecution. They were suffering for their faith. And in verse 11, he calls them sojourners or aliens, depending on the translation that you have. And basically what he's reminding them of is even though they're going through affliction and difficulty, he's telling them that this is not their permanent home. I remember years ago when I was in college, we had an exchange student from Africa come to our campus in Miami, Florida. And this guy was totally uncultured, did not know about modern technology because he came from the bush. He left his country to come to another country that was not his own. And I remember it really surprised him when we put a quarter or several quarters into the Coke machine and a Coke can fell out. He was totally flabbergasted by that because he had never seen that happen before. I remember going through a drive-through and he was amazed to hear the person take my order through a microphone. He totally was shocked, why? Because he was in a country not his own. And Peter here says to the believers to whom he's writing to, you are in a country that is not your own. And so the question is, how are we to live in light of this reality? Because too many Christians today are living as if this is their present permanent home, and the Bible says it's not. Well, Peter gives us several suggestions practically as to how we could live as sojourners and aliens. First of all, we are to abstain from sinful living. John mentioned this, so I'm not going to take a lot of time on it, but notice, if you will, verses 11 and 12, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you, here it is, as aliens and strangers, to abstain, to resist fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's an interesting word in the Greek, wage war. It's used not of a skirmish, but rather of a military campaign. See, the Bible says you and I are involved in a civil war. We are in a battle on the inside of us. We wrestle with the devil, we wrestle with the world system, and we also wrestle here with the flesh. And I think we all know this because every day is a battle. Some days are worse than others, but if you're living the Christian life, you're going to experience a battle on the inside. And it isn't a small skirmish, it is a civil war, it is a military campaign. Why? Because the flesh wages war against the soul. I was at the hospital this past week doing my rounds as a volunteer chaplain, and I went into a, a gentleman's room, and I began to share the gospel with him as I prayed for him. And he said he was a Christian. I don't know. People say they're Christians all the time. 
But he said something kind of humorous to me. He said, you know, being a Christian, he says, you have to battle, and he didn't know what word to use, but he was referring to the flesh, your fallen nature. He says, you know, you have to battle wanting that moon pie and that ice cream all the time. He goes, you know what I'm saying. I said, I get exactly what you're saying. It's not just limited to junk food, not that junk food's bad, but he's saying we've got to resist the flesh on a regular basis. Why? Because as aliens and sojourners, if this is not our permanent home, we don't want to live for the lust of the flesh because that's what the world does. See, to the world, this is their permanent home. They have no hope of the afterlife. Some people believe there's something yonder, but they don't really have any assurance and hope that they're going to spend eternity with God. But as Christians, we understand that. And so here's the issue. What is it that you have to resist in your flesh on a regular basis? I think the big thing in the American church today is complacency. You know, we talk about the big sins of sexual immorality, doing drugs, or gossiping and slandering, but how about the fleshly desire for complacency? That's the sin in the American church that has kept the American church from making an impact in the world. And so Peter says, as a sojourner, you need to resist the flesh which wages war against the soul. And then he says in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, the non-believers. In other words, keep resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why? So that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers. Now, in the early church, they would slander Christians because Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper. You know what they said about Christians? They're cannibals because they talked about eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so they were slandered for being cannibals. And because believers would celebrate love feasts, which are like potluck dinners today, they accused them of incest and sexual immorality. And so when they would get together, uh, they would basically engage in orgies. And of course, they believed Christians were atheists because they did not worship the emperor and they had no gods because our God is an invisible God. And so they were slandered on a regular basis. And he said, look, you need to keep your behavior excellent. Why? So that you can silence the critics, that they may see your good deeds as they observe them and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, he's implying here, when they see your life and the consistency of your life, you're going to lead them to Christ because they're going to glorify God on the day God visits us on the day of judgment. The implication is you're going to lead them to Christ. And what Peter is talking about here is lifestyle evangelism. Now, the Bible talks about proclamation evangelism. We all understand that. We're to present the gospel to people. We're to share the message of Christ. But what reinforces that proclamation evangelism is lifestyle evangelism. Proclamation evangelism is like putting gas in your car. Lifestyle evangelism is pushing the gas pedal. Proclamation evangelism is putting food in your mouth and chewing it. Lifestyle evangelism is swallowing that food. And you see, if our lives do not match our profession and our proclamation, what it does is it undercuts our testimony. I was debating a guy online like I always do, and eventually it got around to the gospel message, and I told him he needed to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. He said, look, I don't, he goes, I don't need God. He goes, I could save myself. He says, I've seen enough of Christians to where I don't want to become a Christian. I went, ouch. See, and that's what Peter is saying not to do. If you're a sojourner, the first responsibility you and I have 
is to resist the flesh as a lifestyle. Are we going to do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But we keep a daily account of our sins, we confess our sins, and we live consistently. Look, you're better off if you're not willing to live the Christian life, don't tell people you're a Christian. You're better off keeping your mouth shut. Because what happens on your job, if you say you're a Christian and you're using profanity all the time, you're cheating your boss, you're doing stuff that is crooked, you're living an immoral lifestyle, you know what that does? It undercuts the message. And so Peter says, as sojourners and aliens, we are to resist the flesh. Secondly, we are to submit and respect governing authorities. And this one is really relevant, I think, for our time today. Notice, if you will, verses 13 through 15. Peter says to these persecuted Christians, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Why the Lord's sake? Because you're not always going to agree with government. Nero was on the throne at this time, and Nero was not friendly to Christians. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, today we would call it the president of the United States, or to the governors, these would be the ones that rule over states, as sent by him. Notice, ultimately, government is established by God. That's what he says in Romans chapter 13. And notice why God has established government. For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. One of the reasons why God has established government, Romans 13 reaffirms this, is God uses government as a form of law and order. Now, Peter and Paul in Romans is not saying that everything that government does is endorsed by God, but the institution of government has been established by God. Why? To establish law and order and to restrain evil and also to commend those who do what is right. Now, here's the problem in our day and time. We're beginning to reverse that order. What we are doing is we are commending rebels we are commending insurrectionists, and we are actually denigrating those who establish law and order. In fact, Ben Shapiro yesterday came out and he said, listen, all these federal agents that are being sent where this anarchy is going on in Oregon and other cities as well, he says these agents are being criticized by leaders for trying to do their job and establish law and order. And so this idea of defund the police, we've talked about this before, is totally anti-God. Yes, root out the bad cops, I get it. There are cops that are bad. But the idea of defunding the police is totally unbiblical. Why? Because God has established government to restrain evil. He's using the family to restrain evil. He uses conscience to restrain evil. And what is under attack today? People are violating their consciences and so the conscience has been shredded. People are wanting to break up the family. And so what happens is if you break up the family, you're going to take away a restraint of evil, and now the government is being attacked today. And Peter says, uh-uh. He says, as a Christian, we are called to submit to the government because they punish evildoers and praise those who do what is right. Verse 15, for such is the will of God, that by doing right, when you are a good citizen, when you are a law-abiding citizen, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Notice again here, lifestyle evangelism. He said that in the previous verse. He's reinforcing it now. Notice what he says in verse 17 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He says, honor the emperor. He doesn't say worship the emperor because in that day, 
Christians, if they did not pinch incense and offer it up to Caesar or offer it up to the emperor, they could be killed for their faith. So he doesn't say worship the emperor. He says honor the emperor. That means to have an attitude of respect. And so what is our responsibility, especially in this day and time? We have a responsibility to submit to government. We may not always agree with government, but we are to be law-abiding citizens. We are to respect those who are in authority. And there is this anti-authority mood that is taking place today. And what happens is if you have politicians that allow this to run amok, you are going to have anarchy in a society. And you see, the purpose of government is to crush the rebellion. Now, obviously, they need to do it in a way that is tactful and right, but they have to restrain it. You say, well, how can I practically submit to the government and honor those in authority? Well, follow the laws of the land. Another thing is voting. That is very important, and I think we know the importance of this election. Also, don't engage in rioting or destroying things. Can a Christian protest? There's nothing wrong with protesting inherently, but remember, what is the motive of the protest, and what's coming out of your mouth, and what kind of signs are you holding up, and what's the cause? Another thing is be a peacemaker. The Bible says we're not to be revolutionaries. You never see that in the Bible. Not resisting police officers. Again, there's this attitude in our country, let's resist the police. They're all bad. All of them are basically inept. They're inadequate. And that is not a biblical concept. Pay your taxes. How about this one? Do you pray for your leaders on a regular basis? You can't pray for them, all of them, all the time, but we are called to pray for them on a regular basis. Now, this one is the more challenging one. Show respect and honor for those in leadership. Listen to what Exodus chapter 22 says. Very convicting passage. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Ooh. You ever curse a president you didn't like? Now, do I have to agree with those in authority and all their political views and all their belief systems? Absolutely not. There is a place for meaningful debate. There is a place for disagreement in terms of their worldview, and that's healthy in a democracy. But in the end, we are called to honor those in authority and to pray for them and respect them. And that includes on the internet, and I'm speaking to myself here, just like for some of you, we have to watch what we tweet, we have to watch what we put there. There's a lot of times where I've typed something, and I went, da, 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 and I hit the back button. Not because I was using profanity, but I thought, you know what, the way this is going to come across may not be the right spirit. Now, this raises a question, is there ever a time for a Christian not to submit to the government? And the answer is yes. One reason why is when the government asks you to do something that violates Scripture. We see examples of this with the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus. We see it with Daniel and his three friends. We also see it with the apostles in the book of Acts. We're going to obey God rather than man. So whenever the government asks you to violate Scripture that's clearly taught in Scripture, we have a right biblically to engage in civil disobedience. China right now has come out with a new law, and they said those people that are on welfare, who are dependent upon the government to receive food, if they don't 
deny Jesus Christ and their Christian faith and take off all the symbols of Christianity in their home and begin to worship their leaders, they are going to deny them access to the food. Now, these are people that are dependent upon it. Imagine if you're in that situation. None of us here has ever known that kind of starvation, possibly, or temptation. What would you do in that situation? Well, at that point, Christians in China are to disobey God. To bring it home even more uh, closely, we're dealing with this now with the COVID-19 situation. Uh, In certain states, as you know, California, Nevada, there may be several other states, the churches are being restricted from meeting, or they can meet in a limited capacity. Well, recently, three Calvary chapels sued the government and basically is trying to fight for the fact that churches ought to be able to meet. You say, was that biblical? It's not unbiblical. They're trying to fight for their rights. And so, they basically decided yesterday in Nevada that Calvary Chapel and other churches cannot meet in an unhimited way. In other words, they're only allowed to have 20 or 30 people in the meeting, and that's it. And so the Supreme Court ruled against the church, setting a precedent. That may be a precedent for what's to come. And a well-known preacher, John MacArthur, his church crafted a letter, his elders, and here is what the letter said. I'm giving you an excerpt here, and I think it was very well stated of how when the government asks us to do something that's unbiblical, we have a right to civil disobedience. Quote, God has established three institutions within human society, the family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional limits that must be respected. A father's authority is limited to his own family. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. And government is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community. God has not granted, here it is, civil rulers' authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. The church does not have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. Parents do not have the authority to manage civil matters while circumventing government officials. And similarly, government officials have no right to interfere in ecclesiastical matters in a way that undermines or disregards the God-given authority of pastors and elders, end quote. And so they made a decision. We're not going to listen to Governor Newsom in California. We are going to meet, and if we want to meet beyond 20 people, that's what we're going to do. You see, there is a place to disobey government, but that is not the norm. Our responsibility is to submit to government. Now, there may be one other way in which you and I can disobey, and this one is a controversial one, and that is this. When the government abuses its authority and it becomes tyrannical. When the government abuses its authority and it becomes tyrannical. Now, this is a controversial one. Christians are divided on this one. But you remember the War of Independence, the Revolutionary War in this country, Some people think that America was rebelling against God because they did not submit to England. Other Christians are going to argue otherwise. And so there are cases where they believe, like for example, Hitler in the Third Reich, 
Hitler was annihilating the Jews. He was committing mass genocide. And so you had a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never written his biography, he was a Lutheran German pastor. And he wrote a lot about the cost of discipleship. Well, he was part of the plot to actually assassinate Hitler. It never came about, as you know. And he was hung in a German prison camp. And he was a follower of Christ. And he said, we have an obligation. If a government becomes so corrupt so tyrannical, where it begins to annihilate its people, we have a responsibility to stand up. And other Christians would say, no, because Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if it was, I would have servants that would fight for me in order to obtain my release. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so there's a fine line here. Because listen, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Christians are to be known for their peaceable lives. We're not to be revolutionaries. If we are persecuted, we are persecuted. That's what the Scripture says. However, if the government says, do this, this, and this, and there may come a day when they're going to forbid John and I to preach certain things in the pulpit, I think that day is coming sooner than later. And listen, John and I have to make a decision what we're going to do, and you know what decision we're going to make. And I hope pastors around the country will stand and say, we're going to preach the Word of God unabatedly, unashamedly, unabashedly, and we don't care about the consequences. There's a third thing that Peter tells us to do as sojourners and aliens. Don't abuse your Christian liberty. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, act as free men. In other words, you're free in Jesus Christ. You have been forgiven of your sins. You have been set free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin. He says, even though you're free, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. In other words, you're free in Christ, but don't use your freedom as a license for sin. Hey, I'm forgiven. I could do whatever I want now as a Christian because God has forgiven me of all my sins, and I know I'm eternally secure, therefore I'm going to go out and do what I want. We call this hyper-grace. In other words, we're under the grace of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, we're under the canopy of God's grace. Paul says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. In other words, the more you sin, the more grace God gives you. You can't outstrip God's grace. Your sin is like a drop of water. God's grace is like the Pacific Ocean. You cannot outstrip God's grace. But listen, he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. Very strong language in the Greek. Look at Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, Being free in Christ gives us the opportunity to serve God and to serve other people. It's not a license, Peter says, to live a life of sin because we are forgiven. One parishioner came up to a pastor, a well-known pastor in this country, and he was preaching on this subject, and here's what this parishioner said to the pastor after the service. I don't pay my taxes. I'm not a citizen of this world. I haven't paid my taxes in 25 years. Why, asked the preacher. I'm not a citizen of this world. I don't have to pay my taxes. I don't have to obey speed laws. I'm a heavenly person. Well, you're going to go to heaven if you don't obey them. I don't care what it says about trespass. I don't have to mess with trespass laws. I don't live in this world. It's all my father's place anyway. 
Every time I see a trespass sign, it irritates me because that's God's and all that's God's is mine. I don't have to mess with the civil law, criminal law. I'm above all that. He said, I am free. End quote. Nope. He's violating 1 Peter and Galatians. That's not the perspective. You say, well, if I'm free in Christ and I have Christian liberty, how am I to exercise my liberty? Now, there are things in Scripture that the Bible says, don't do this, don't do that. Obviously, we know clearly that there are certain things we're not to do, but what about those gray areas? Well, here are some principles. Let me read them to you for the sake of time. Number one, does it violate my conscience? When it comes to Christian liberty and you don't know what to do, ask this question. Does it violate my conscience? If it does, don't do it. Can I do it in faith? Paul says in Romans 14, if you can't do it in faith, don't do it. Will it cause my brother to stumble? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If it does, don't do it. Will I become enslaved by it? If you have an area that you struggle with, alcohol, having a drink here and there, you should not do it because it will enslave you. Will it hinder me from reaching the lost? And then finally, will it glorify God? It says, do all things to the glory of God. So those principles should guide your Christian liberty. Well, there's another thing that Peter says you and I are to do if we're to be good citizens, and that is this, we are to respect all people. Notice what he says in verse 16, and we'll fly through these because they're pretty simple commands. I think we understand all of them. He says, honor all people. Honor all people. That's not just the government, that's all people. Now, this is a simple command, but let's be honest, we struggle with this. He says we're to respect and honor all people regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their religious beliefs. We are to respect and honor. That doesn't mean we don't disagree with them. For example, to make it relevant, you know this lady up on the screen, you may not agree with her politics. There's a lot of people who agree with AOC, and there's a lot of Christians who don't agree with her. I happen to not agree with her. But you know what? She is a person made in the image of God. That's why we honor all people. And a Republican leader this week walked up to her while she was going up a courthouse, up the stairs. He pointed his finger in her face, and I can't repeat what he said to her. But it basically was very, very nasty. And she was on the Senate floor complaining about this. You know what? That senator should not have said what he said. Why? Because it's disrespectful. It's okay to disagree with people. It's okay to debate those issues. But it's another thing for us to dishonor people. And you know what? Christians can be known to do this, especially on the internet. We can say the most nastiest, vilest things of other people, forgetting that people are made in the image of God and God loves them. There's a fifth thing that Peter tells us to do, and that is to love God's people in verse 17. Again, very brief commands. He says, love the brotherhood. What does he mean by that? Well, this word love is agape love. It is the love of choice. It is the love of will. It is a sacrificial love. Now, on the one hand, we don't need to be taught as Christians to love other people. Why? Because Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Holy Spirit teaches us, God teaches us. What does he mean by that? Well, it's instinctive. When you and I are saved, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, Romans chapter 5. And so I don't have to be taught to love other people. It's instinctive. It comes natural. But on the other hand, in the previous chapter, Peter said what? He says, love one another fervently. You know what that word fervently means in the Greek? It means to stretch yourself. Why? Because some people are hard to love. 
And so within the Christian community, we have to cultivate love. Yes, it comes natural, but on the other hand, there are people that rub you wrong. There are people you don't like. There are people, even Christians, that get under your skin and you don't like their personality. You know what? The Bible says love them. When was the last time that you sacrificially went out of your way to love another brother or sister in Christ apart from your family? See, a lot of times we talk about Christian love. You know, John says we're not to love just in word only, but we're to love in what? We're to love in deed. It reminds me of the hunters. A group of older men were out hunting, and they divided up into twos, and they went out, and they agreed that they would come back to the campsite in the evening. Well, one of the guys came back pulling an eight-point buck, and he's dragging it. And the one guy said, hey, where's your partner, Harry? He said, well, I think Harry had a stroke, and... Uh, and I'm not sure exactly, but he's laying on the trail there somewhere. And the guy looked at him. He said, what? He said, and you brought the deer with you? He said, well, I figured no one would steal the deer or no one would steal Harry. So I left him there. Well, that, you can't have that mentality. We've got to love other people sacrificially. I was reading about a guy who worked for uh, one of the news organizations, and this happened in the year 2000. Do you remember when Somalia experienced a massive famine? And this reporter, who was a Christian, actually went to Somalia, and he said, you could smell the stench of death everywhere. He said, it almost gets on your clothes. And he says, a lot of these kids in Somalia, many of them, they went to this village, and there was a lot of them that were dead there. He said, it just, it made you very sick to your stomach. And he said, this one little kid came up to them. He was very weak. His hair was orange. And he said, one of the reporters had a grapefruit. And they tried to give it to the boy, but he was too weak to hold it in his hands. This is a true story. So they cut it in half, and then the little boy kind of looked at them and thanked them, grabbed half of the grapefruit, and he went to the camp. They kind of followed him, and he went to the camp area, and they noticed that this little boy went up to another boy laying on the ground, and they presumed that that was his brother. And he took the grapefruit, and he began to chew it, and he'd open his brother's mouth, and he would spit it in there and push his jaw back and forth. Well, they found out later that the older brother that fed his younger brother actually died, and the younger brother that he fed actually lived. And he said in the article, he said, I immediately thought of Jesus' words, no greater love than if a person lays down his life for someone else. See, that's sacrificial love. And you know what? I'd like to say I'm there and I'm not. I think we all are in progress, are we not? Because we love others, but then we get selfish, and we all have to battle that. But Peter here says, love the brotherhood. And listen, you know one of the greatest ways you love other people is by what you say about them, how you treat them, and also whether or not you're willing to serve them. If you want to love Christians here at Calvary Chapel, get involved. Get involved in ministry, serve other people. That's one of the greatest ways that we love other people. A lot of Christians don't want to get involved because it involves time, it involves sacrifice, but listen, you love other people sacrificially by getting involved in their life. Another thing he says here, number six, cultivate a reverence for God. Look at verse 16. He says, fear God. If you want to be a sojourner or an alien, he says, fear God. What does that mean? That means to have a reverence for God. It doesn't mean to cower in fear. It simply means that you cultivate a reverence towards God. 
I read an article this week, you probably saw the article of the San Francisco Giants pitcher. His name is Sam Coonrod. Everybody else was bowing because of the BLM movement, and he decided not to bow. And they asked him why, and here is what he said, quote, I am a Christian, so I just believe that I can't kneel before anything besides God, end quote. Now, does that mean he fears God? On the one hand, yes, but here's how we know we fear God. What's the litmus test? The proverb says this, the fear of the Lord turns away from what? Evil. And so I don't know this man's life. You cannot, you cannot bow out of respect for God, but if you're living an evil life, you're not fearing God. Because the litmus test of a person that fears God is a person that is willing to turn away from evil. Not perfectly, but you're willing to turn away from evil and you're willing to live for the Lord. Well, there's one final thing that Peter says you and I are to do if we're to be good sojourners and aliens, and that is this. We are to be a good employee or employer. Now, he's going to use the language here of servants, masters. In our day and time, we use the language of employee, employer. Notice what it says in verses 18 through 20. Servants, and this would be a household slave back in that day, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now, in that day when you became a Christian, one of the things that they would tell the slaves to do is you are free spiritually, so go ahead and rebel against your master. And masses of slaves who claim to be Christians would actually rebel against their master. And Peter's saying, no, don't do that. Be submissive to your master with all respect. If you work on a job, which most of you do, he's saying respect your boss. Be submissive to your boss, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Have you ever worked for a cantankerous boss? And listen, if you're a master, if you're a boss, the Bible says to treat your employees correctly. He says we're not only to submit to our boss that is nice and pleasant and treats us with respect and pays us a fair wage, he says, but to those who are unreasonable, those who do not treat you correctly. And listen, there are people in tough situations. Now, in America, we can get out of our job. We're not necessarily bound. We have labor laws that govern what we do. And so, those laws are designed to provide protection so that there's not abuses. But did you know, in India, they don't have some of those labor laws, and so children at age 8, 9, and 10 can be abused? Or I was reading this week, the despicable treatment again of the Christians in North Korea. I was reading about one lady, and she was describing what they do to them in the labor camp, and I said, Lord, my faith is so anemic. My faith is so weak. They treat them like animals. They feed them rotten corn, and if they disobey and they don't respect, they put them in a room where they're like this for six, seven hours, and they can't move. It is horrible, the conditions. And you know, Christians in that day, they didn't have labor unions. They couldn't just say, well, you know what? I'm tired of you, master. I think I'm going to find another master that's going to treat me right. He says, no. He says, submit to those who are unreasonable. Why? Verse 19, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, when you submit even though you are unjustly treated, that pleases God. For what credit is there, verse 20, when you sin and are harshly treated, 
you endure it with patience. In other words, if you're harshly treated and basically you endure it with patience, that is pleasing to God. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, this finds favor with God. In other words, if you rebel against your employer and you have a cantankerous attitude, that doesn't honor God. But he says, look, if you're mistreated and you submit and you do what you're supposed to do unless they ask you to do something unbiblical, he said, this finds favor with God. And you know what? This would apply to a marriage. You may be in a marriage that is very dissatisfactorily. Maybe your husband is treating you terrible, or maybe your wife is treating you terrible, and you want out of the marriage, but you have no grounds to get out of the marriage. This verse says that when you endure a difficult marriage, and you're mistreated in that marriage, and you humbly come to God and say, God, I can't, but you choose to be a good spouse, that finds favor with God. You say, well, why should I bear up under that unjust treatment? Well, as we close, he mentions in verse 21 through 25 why we're to bear up under unjust treatment, because we have an example. Look what it says. For you have been called for this purpose. You say, what? You have been called to endure difficulty that you can't get out of. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. How is Jesus our example of being treated unjustly and unfairly? And Jesus bore under the difficulty of that. Well, look what it says in verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. It says, and while being reviled, when they would spew out All that they said against him on the cross, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Imagine that. He is our consummate example of someone who is treated unjustly and unfairly, and yet he bore up under the difficulty of that, and he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would he bear up under the treatment of unjust treatment? Look at what he did in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You know why Jesus didn't respond? Well, he was perfectly God and he could not sin, but he was accomplishing the greatest act in human history, which is the act of redemption. He was bearing our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Now, I know prosperity teachers like to use this verse and say that God guarantees healing for everybody physically in this life, but he's talking about spiritual healing here. The reason why Jesus bore up under difficult circumstances, unfair treatment, is because Jesus knew he was accomplishing redemption, and he is our example. When you're mistreated by your boss, when you're mistreated by your spouse, and you want out and you can't get out. Jesus is our example. Why? Because he submitted. You say, Mike, that is almost impossible. Listen, we know it's tough, right? Because it's hard enough to submit but not let anything come out of our mouth. You know, when somebody attacks you, what is your normal response? You want to revile back. Can you imagine all the insults they hurled at Jesus and yet Jesus did not retaliate? I remember one time I was at a mall and I was in the parking lot. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I was driving my car and they didn't, you know, they had lines on the road there and and I came up kind of a little bit fast, but not too fast. Well, this lady on the other side of me, she just, she had her window down and she started screaming at me and I didn't know why. You ever been there before? Somebody screaming at you? And so as she's turning, 
past me like this, her window's down and she's yelling at me and screaming. Man, my flesh rose up and it got the best of me. I didn't say anything, but I looked at her and I went, I said, Lord, forgive me, I shouldn't have done that. And I'm not saying that to boast. I shouldn't have done that. I got in the flesh. But listen, we all know what that's like. And yet Jesus didn't do that. And then he says in verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of your soul. In other words, you were like sheep, you were lost. Isaiah 53, Jesus bore our sins, and he brought us back into his sheepfold, and now he is the guardian and shepherd of our souls, which means this, when you are being treated unfairly and unjustly, go to Jesus. He's the shepherd of your soul. He knows what you're going through. In fact, just as a side note here, Peter says three things about Jesus and what he did for us in this section. First of all, he is our shining example. Secondly, he is our substitute on the cross, our sacrificial substitute, and he is also the shepherd of our soul. Why was Jesus all these? Why was he our shining example? When they attacked him, he didn't respond back because he was our sacrificial substitute. He died in our place, took the penalty of our sins, and if we're willing to repent and trust in him, we will no longer be wandering sheep, but we'll be brought back into his sheepfold, and Jesus will strengthen us. And so what is he saying here? He's saying, as a sojourner and as an alien, you know what our responsibility is? To submit to our employer. And that day I was a slave and master. You say, but Mike, if I'm being mistreated in my job, is there a place for me to get another job? Well, pray about that. There's nothing wrong with shifting jobs if you're being mistreated. And there's nothing wrong to a certain extent with using the legal system. God has established jurisprudence in this country in order to give us opportunity to exercise our wills. I understand that. But sometimes God may want us to stay in a situation that is not necessarily what we'd want to be in. Some people don't have grounds for divorce. They can't get out of the marriage, and the marriage is difficult. And God says, bear up under that. Why? Because it not only pleases me, but also Jesus is your example. When he was treated unjustly and unfairly, look at how he responded. You say, but I don't respond the way I should all the time. Neither do I. And that's why we go to the shepherd of our souls to say, God, forgive me for what I have done. And so how can you be a good alien or a sojourner? Here's what Peter says. Number one, abstain from sinful living. Number two, submit to and respect governing authorities. Number three, don't abuse your Christian liberty. Number four, respect all people. Number five, love God's people. Number six, cultivate a reverence for God. And finally, be a good employee or employer. Let's pray.